0: Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel of Mark and we thank you for the life of Jesus. And I pray that his life would be our life, that we would walk in his steps and live according to the spirit that he left us and treasure his teachings. Um, we thank you that by his life we have life. Um, through his life and death and resurrection, we. Have been given eternal life and so we praise you for that. I ask that you would guide our time in our discussion today, that it would be pleasing in your sight, that it would stretch us and grow us, increase our love for you and challenge us and we ask this in Jesus name. Amen. So we're in Mark chapter 10 we're gonna pick up again in verse 23 and we did talk about uh, quite a bit of this but not all of it so we will revisit a part of this. And um, verse 23 follows this interaction between Jesus and this rich young man uh, who asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, basically, obey the law. And the man said, oh, I did it. I have, I've done that. So Jesus said, you just lack one thing. Go and sell everything you have, and, and then you'll be able to enter the kingdom of God. Um, and, of course, the man does not go and sell everything he has. Instead, he's sad and he walks away depressed because he was turned away by Jesus and unwilling to give up his possessions to follow him. So let's read 23 through 31. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands For my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses, and brothers, and sisters, and mothers, and children, and lands, with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. So just as a refresher, remember the shock of the disciples in hearing this teaching, right, in verse uh, 26. They were exceedingly astonished and said to him, who then can be saved? That that comes out of this idea that if you are rich, it is because God already favors you, right? So if, if the people that God already favors can't enter the kingdom of God, then who can enter the kingdom of God? The assumption is basically nobody. It would be either... Those favored by God or nobody, right? And Jesus only adds to the shock here by saying, yeah, it's impossible to enter the kingdom of God by the will of man. All right. So, um, verse 24, I think, also addresses a common misconception. Hi, guys. Welcome. Good morning. Again, you can move the desks around to accommodate. your family. Um, so, so we got a couple of misconceptions that we are addressing in this text. The first one is that if you're rich, it's because God favors you, and therefore, you know, you're blessed and accepted in His eyes. That's simply not true. Wealth is irrelevant in the kingdom of God. But you've also got verse twenty-four here. Um, <clears throat> Jesus says in verse 23, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And then verse 24, the disciples were amazed at his word. And then Jesus clarifies children how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. So the other misconception is that it's actually not that hard to enter the kingdom of God. Right? That's that's the belief that the the rich young ruler had. He came to Jesus saying, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus is like, what does the law say? And the guy says this, and I've kept it all. Right? So... This is a person who thinks that his own righteousness is actually sufficient in the eyes of God. And Jesus is going to destroy that misconception as well. So, all right. Then we've got, you know, this, this we talked about this kind of the end of the class last week. The temptation to kind of smooth out the teaching of Jesus and say, no, no, the eye of the needle, it's about this gate in the wall and, and a camel could squeeze through it. It just has to take off all of its baggage. Um, no, that's not true, and that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is very emphatically saying it's impossible for anyone to be saved by human efforts. You cannot do it, okay? And then you have verse 28. you got to love Peter because Peter is always scheming, right? And he says, but Jesus, look, we, we've done this. You know, that rich young man who was turned away, who didn't want to give up everything for you, we have done it, right? So we have earned your blessing in the kingdom of God, haven't we? And um, and Jesus, in response, kind of changes the subject. Um but it is true that, in a sense, Peter and the other apostles have entered the kingdom of God. But it's, it's not because of any action of theirs. It's because they're trusting this man that they're choosing to follow. Right? It's faith that brings them into this kingdom. It's not their own human efforts. Um, and Jesus, I think, kind of changes the subject. Uh, because he says, Peter, you're looking at the sacrifice, but you should be looking at the blessing. Right? You think that you have lost something to be one of my disciples, but in fact, you've inherited so much more than you could ever imagine. Any thoughts or questions on any of that? Comments? Okay, so verse 29. Let's think really hard about these words of Jesus in 29 through 30. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold in the future. Is that what it says? It says what? Now in
1: this
0: time. Now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life okay so um since so, so what's Jesus saying here what's he talking about did you become a christian and get you know a beach house and a and a forest cabin mm-hmm. Did you become a Christian and have many more children and a second mom and another father, brothers, sisters? What's Jesus talking about? In verse 30, he says, now in this time. Does he mean that? Like, we all understand that there are riches to be inherited in the kingdom of God forever once we step into heaven, right? We get that. But what's this business that Jesus is saying to Peter about? Peter, don't worry. You left your family, but there will be more family. And you left your home, but there will be more homes. My commentary says
1: there were words in the, rewards and the- the present to which jesus refers might be the benefits of believers being one family and sharing their means with those in
0: need yeah amen that's exactly what i would say right i would hope that when you come over to my house you feel like your family right i would hope that when we gather together and you see your brothers and sisters at church or in small groups or even in the grocery store that you're like hey this is my family Right? The fact of the matter is that the bond between believers that comes through the blood of Christ is a more significant bond than you have with your DNA genetic blood, okay? So you may have your house taken from you by somebody who hates you because you're a follower of Jesus, but if that were to happen, you could expect to be welcomed into somebody else's house in the family of God who would gladly care for you, right? And 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 what is the real joy of possessions anyway? Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. So this generosity, this hospitality, this sharing, is all part of what it means to belong to the kingdom of God. So Jesus is not being—he's um, not—he's not engaging in like wishful thinking here. He's not encouraging a prosperity gospel. Um, he's not even being. You know, dishonest or uh, misleading, truly this is a statement about what it means to belong to the body of Christ. Um, and so you've not you've not sacrificed anything. If you've left a house you have brothers and sisters who will welcome you into theirs. If you've left a brother you find new brothers in Christ in the body. If you've left a sister or a mother or a father or children You are welcomed into the family of Christ and you find those new spiritual relationships with other folks. You know, if you've left lands, don't worry, you'll have a place to call your own with God's people. Okay? Does that make sense? And so, a hundredfold, you know, again, I can, I mean, I don't push this on anybody, but. I can expect to show up at pretty much anybody's house who attends Maricopa Springs and knock on the door, and they're going to welcome me in, right? They're going to show me hosp- hospitality. If I were to, like, walk down the street and knock on a random stranger's door and just be like, hey, can we hang out? They'd be like, who are you, creep? Get off my property. So uh, this is a beautiful thing, and I can tell you, like, I've traveled all over the world. I've, I've traveled to Pakistan and been welcomed into the homes of believers. I've traveled to Sudan and been welcomed into the homes of believers. I've traveled to Bolivia and been welcomed into the homes of believers. I've been all over the world and Christians are eager to share what they have with their brothers and sisters in Christ. So this is a beautiful reality of life in the kingdom of God. Any comments or questions, thoughts on that? Okay, but that's not the only thing that Jesus promises. What else jumps out at you in verse 30 that Jesus promises us that we will have because of our commitment to the gospel? I hear you whispering it. Say it nice and loud. Persecution. Persecution, right? So when you... Join the family of God. You forsake the families of this world. And they will, therefore, hate you because you walk away from them, right? Um, You know, in some ways, it's sort of like, man, maybe this is a bad example, but, you know, the gang member who wants to get out of the gang. Like a lot of gangs, there is no exit. You You don't get to leave, right? Um, If you're going to leave, you basically have to go into hiding. And so this is the way the world views those who are followers of Jesus. We're enemies, right? And so Jesus promises that if you're going to follow him, part of that is going to uh, include persecution. You will be richly blessed with this incredible family that will share and love you and show you hospitality. But you'll also be... uh, Considered a, a rebel and a traitor by those who stand against Christ. We're going to talk about that actually a little bit more in my sermon after adult Sunday school. Um, but I think it's, uh, I, I, I have the reference in my sermon notes, but I think it's like 2 <laughs> Timothy that says um, that any, everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So we should expect that. We, we have been very blessed to be mostly comfortable as American Christians, um, but there are Christians in countries like India, even Pakistan, Indonesia, that are actually suffering for their faith. Um, India right now is trying very hard to basically make converting to Christianity from Hinduism illegal. Uh, But Christians routinely there have their homes burned to the ground. It's dangerous. Then what else does Jesus promise for those who forsake the world to follow him? Right at the end of verse 30. eternal life can you even imagine that you cannot even imagine that I, I would be willing to bet that if you went to a guy like Bill Gates and said would you be willing to spend 10 billion dollars if you could buy another 20 years of life how do you think he would respond to that no, no? yeah right I think he'd be like yeah you know maybe I wouldn't want to be like you know 90 years old. I would want a body that's more like maybe my 40 year old body but yeah if I could if i he has enough money that if he had the power to extend his life 20 years, I think he'd write a check for 10 billion bucks for that um, and so there is a rich there are riches beyond riches in something like eternal life, everlasting life um and, of course, in the age to come where there is eternal life, what is there not any of? We just, Death, yes, but we also just talked about it. It comes right before in verse 30. There's no more persecution, right? No more pain, no more sorrow, no more tears, no more... Frustration, no more anxiety, no more worry. Um, That's all held in escrow for us in the kingdom yet to come, right? It's Mm -hmm. it's being it's it's already there. It's already waiting for us. Uh, Yeah. And again, I can't even just imagine what eternal life must be like. Okay, then verse 31. Many who are first will be last and the last first. What does it mean? What's Jesus saying by this teaching? A few weeks ago, we talked about this idea of the disciples trying to establish a kind of pecking order. And, uh, you know, because... We want to sort things out, right? We, we want to know how we line up. And um, and Jesus flips the whole human way of viewing relationships up on its head. Um, you know, lowliness is greatness. and uh, And the kind of human greatness that we think of power and wealth and prestige and accomplishments means nothing. Who's the guy that just retired from football this week? Tom Brady? Is that the right guy? Uh, I think he retired, but I don't know. Yeah, he retired, but like he's going out as like the greatest in, I don't know anything about this. I just happened to get my hair cut and they were you know putting, they had sports on the TV and so they were talking about this guy. I don't know anything about him. The point is they were pretty much saying he's the greatest in football history and like maybe one of the greatest athletes ever. In the kingdom of heaven, nobody's gonna know his name. Nobody's gonna care. He will be irrelevant, right? Unless he gives his life to Jesus and then he has greatness by virtue of his relationship to Jesus. But here's a guy that for decades, people will be saying his name and in the kingdom to come, nobody will care, right? And in the kingdom to come, I can tell you about a man in uh, Kenya in this little town called Cacorico, Kakariko. Kikoriko. And uh, no, Encorico. he's the pastor of Enkorica Baptist Church. There's like 20 people that go to church there. He will be great, right? Angels will actually sing his praises. Less than Jesus, of course, right? All the glory will go to Jesus. But Jehoshaphat in Enkorica Baptist Church Will be greater than Tom Brady, right? Greater than the greatest person than you can imagine, because that's how the kingdom of God works. Any other th- thoughts, questions, comments on that? Man, that that last part about the first be last and the last first should really should really give you some. Um, <laughs> It should really give you some help when you are feeling insulted or violated. So let me get very practical about this, right? Um, you get passed up for a job promotion because of somebody that you work with and they they get elevated and you don't. It's irrelevant, it doesn't matter, right? You're driving down the 347 and somebody cuts you off. That That really aggravates me because I'm like, I think I'm important when I'm on the road. Does that make sense? And yet, it's irrelevant. Um, You know, if somebody says something that offends you or hurts you, you can let it go, because it doesn't matter in the kingdom of God, right? You can actually take the crappiest job and not be worried about it, because God is pleased with you. These are the kinds of things that have very practical applications in our lives. Okay. Um, I also maybe just used a naughty word in front of young children, so forgive me for that. Sorry. Uh, How about we read verses 32 through 34? And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And it's verse 32 says, they're amazed and afraid. Why? Why would the followers of Jesus be amazed and afraid at this point?
1: Maybe amazed at the um like the good news, like you're going to have brothers and sisters and eternal life, but afraid
0: that you're going to have persecution. Okay. So connecting it back to the context. What Jesus was just teaching them leads to both amazement and fear. So, at least in Mark's gospel, this is the first mention of Jerusalem.
1: Okay.
0: But I think I think that's the route I would go, Don. Actually, is um, Jerusalem is the hornet's nest, guys? This is it the lion's den? Jesus will not be welcomed there. At least not by the people who have power. Cuz he has opposed them. He has said that they are blind guides. He's said things in opposition to them. That they don't they don't understand the point of Abraham and they don't actually comprehend the teachings of Moses, right? These are the guys that are the experts and Jesus has said that they know nothing. So He is walking into the lion's den, and he's walking ahead of them. He is courageously and triumphantly making his way to Jerusalem. And I think these guys know enough to know that that's not going to turn out well. And so they're amazed at his courage, and they're afraid at what awaits them there. And and then Jesus kind of pulls them aside and says, you don't even know. You have no idea what's actually in store. And he explains it to them, even though he's already explained it to them several times. And maybe that's why they're, they're afraid, because he said, look, I'm, I'm going to be crucified. And yet, then Jesus, why are you going that way, right? Like, if we go this way, maybe we can avoid that. But you're walking straight into it. What's wrong with you? Um, Now, another part of this might be that uh, they are expecting a Messiah who will be like David, right? So the Jews were looking for not a spiritual savior necessarily, but a socio-political savior. They were looking for a king who would reestablish the throne of David and would cast out the Romans from Jerusalem and would make Israel a great nation again. So there might be a part of this where they're thinking, okay, we're going up to Jerusalem. This means that the you know the fighting and the war is about to begin. Uh, Jesus, we don't have our swords and our armor on quite yet, right? And then we get a very explicit prediction as to what is coming in verses 33 to 34. Um, Jesus says, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. Wow, well, Jesus, thanks for the encouragement. You know, we're, we're afraid as we're making this journey, and um, that doesn't really help. You know, speak some kind and tender, hopeful words to us. So I don't think this did anything to calm their nerves. It must have created further agitation. And yet, when we get to the next verse, we'll see that uh, this went totally over their head. (laughs) Right? Because the next thing we see in verse 35 is James and John saying, Hey, uh, when you're sitting on your throne, you know, we'd like the seats next to you. Um, We'd like to have some power and prestige along with you. Um, They are looking to the future thinking, okay, if we go to Jerusalem then maybe Jesus will conquer and we will have glory and greatness. But I think the reason why Mark puts this conversation right here is because Jesus just explained to them that greatness in the kingdom of God is lowliness. How low? So low that you would be spit on and mocked and flogged and killed. That is the path to glory for Jesus. It's not by having the crown of David put on his head. It's by suffering the shame and rejection and pain of the crucifixion. That is some heavy stuff. Any other thoughts or comments on any of that? So here's here's something to consider, right? When you're feeling like you have already been brought low and you ask God, how much lower must I go? Mm
1: -hmm.
0: What would be the answer? I would say still a little lower right and when you get there and you go back to God and you're like is this low enough I think you would hear him say still a little lower right husbands in loving your wives and sacrificing to love them you might get to the point where you're like I think I'm pretty low but if you were to bring that before God he would say no no you can go a little lower still Right? And wives, I would say the same thing to you. In loving your husbands, you may feel like, I don't know that I can go any lower than this. And yet, if you were to come to Jesus, he would say, no, you can. You can go a little lower. And in loving our children and in serving other people and in you know obedience to Jesus and in your capacity for suffering and all of these things, when we feel like we have reached our capacity, if we were to go to Jesus, he would Say no. You can go just a little lower, right? And the the beautiful promise to us is that the lower we go, the more exalted that eternal life will be when we inherit it. I was just thinking, like Jesus is God, and He knows what is going to happen, and He is
1: willing to go and be mocked, speed. Blog, and I don't think many of us get um,
0: speed on. You know, like yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, we think that you know we've suffered greatly because of you know our boss might say, hey, you know, don't don't keep your Bible on your desk. Can you like put it in your drawer? Suffering, great suffering, I've endured. I probably told you this story before, but when I was in high school, I wanted to give a speech on Jesus in my speech class, and uh, my my teacher told me that I couldn't give a speech on Jesus because he was a fictional character, Mm -hmm. and um, and I was like, "You're crazy! Like Jesus is not a fictional character. Nobody actually believes that." And so she sent me to the dean's office, and I got in huge trouble for like mouthing off to my teacher. And, um, you know, I thought like I was being persecuted. And I was, right? Like this much. Um, not much at all. Nothing, nothing compared to what Christ endured. Let's look at Philippians too, because this, this passage relates. This is a profoundly powerful picture of the humility of Jesus. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 3. This is the Apostle Paul. He writes, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Keep that in mind because we're going to go back to Mark and we're going to see James and John express selfish ambition as they say, Jesus, when you enter your kingdom, let us have some power and authority almost equal with you, right? Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. It's not difficult to look to our own interests, is it? No, it's not. But it can be difficult to look to the interests of others. I mean, I see this even in marriage sometimes, right? It's like, I go downstairs to grab a snack, my wife's upstairs maybe doing laundry. Like. Why wouldn't I ask her before I go down, hey, are you? would you like a snack too? But I don't even think about it because I'm thinking about me. So look not only to your own interests, but the interests of others, verse five. How do you do this? Well, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. How can you be the kind of person who considers the interests and needs of others? Well, because Christ considered yours and you have his mind and his spirit. Verse 6. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So there's God in his glory, Jesus in all greatness and majesty and authority and power. And he lays that all aside to be born in the form of a servant in the likeness of men verse 8 and being found in human form so that was already great humility right to go from God to man but verse 8 being found in human form then he humbled himself even further by becoming obedient to the point of death sacrificing his life but then he went even further because it wasn't just any ordinary death it was the Roman torture that was meant to be the most humiliating terrible form of execution the Romans could devise. So even death on a cross. And as a result of this humility, verse 9, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. So because Jesus... Descended to the lowest, he was exalted to the highest. So how much lower should you go? Just a little bit more. And when you get there, you should go a little bit more. All right, back to Mark chapter 10, verse 35. Unless anybody else has other comments on Philippians 2. Mark 10, verse 35. And now we see the disciples totally miss the point, (laughs) right? Which is what they so often do. It says, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Oh, if you have little kids, have you ever seen this trick played? Hey, hey, I want, I've got a question for you, Dad, but I, I want you to just uh, say yes before. Will you, will you be willing to do this for me? Um, we want you to, <laughs> verse 36, or verse 35, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. What, what wise teacher would be like, yes, of course. Now, what's your question? How stupid do they think Jesus is? All right, verse 36. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? Verse 37. And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those to whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at in James and John. What? You guys want to be first? You asked the question before we had a chance? How dare you? 42. Man, that's some heavy stuff. All right, so verse 37, these two men, James and John, are ambitious for glory. And remember, Philippians 2 said, do nothing from vain and amb- selfish ambition. Thank you. And uh, this request is driven by selfish ambition. Um, and yet, verse 38, Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. You have no idea what will be required of you in order for you to have the kind of prominence and authority you will have. So what is the cup that Jesus is going to drink? This is some biblical imagery that is important for us to be aware of. Say it again.
1: Is the the cross? Sacrificial. Yeah. Um, when he says, "If you uh, took God in the Garden of that center, if only you could uh, take this cup away from me, but not my world." Well, yes. Like
0: yep. So it is the cup of his death, but there's uh, there's some other imagery attached to the cup. Is anybody aware of what that is? In in the Old Testament prophets, and then again in Revelation. It's the cup of wrath. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So no one can bear the cup of God's wrath except Christ alone, who is the God-man. Right? And, um, and so you don't know what you're asking. Um, let's look at Revelation 19 real quick. This is a terrifying passage. Revelation 19, verse 11. Man, everybody's got this soft, sissy picture of Jesus because he was this gentle carpenter man from Nazareth. Um, And he was gentle. But he was also studly enough to endure the cross after the beating that he received. But this picture of Jesus is often left out of our discussions about Christ. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So this idea of the winepress is connected back to, and this is where my, my lack of time and preparation this week means that I'm I don't remember exactly, but there's a passage in Isaiah that talks about God pouring out the cup of his wrath full force upon humanity. And forgive me for not having that reference for you. Maybe, actually, if you have a reference Bible. Well, let's see if it's in my reference Bible right here. Um, Unless somebody can beat me to it. 1915... It looks like maybe it's Isaiah sixty-three-three. So the point here is going back to Mark chapter eleven. Is it there, Monica? You're looking it up, Isaiah
1: sixty-three-three. Uh, it says, "I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I dropped them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For a day of being vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption had come. i looked but there was no one to help and i was called, but there was no one to uphold so my own arm brought me salvation
0: that's okay you can you can stop there if it doesn't um let's see if i can do isaiah 51 17
1: and following is because it does reference the cup uh, as Mm -hmm. opposed to the wine press which is significant but it's more the stage where you have the graves that are trampled so God is going to trample people uh, figuratively so here in Isaiah 51 it says awake awake, rise up Jerusalem you who have drunk from the hand of
0: the Lord the cup of his wrath there you go and you've got it again. I found it in Jeremiah 25. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all nations to whom I send you drink it. So these the, these pictures are all put together, right? Because when you tread a wine press, what comes out of that? The, when you squish the, the grapes, you get the grape juice that ferments into wine and you put it in a cup and you drink, right? So, and this is why the cup that Jesus passes around is... Full of wine that represents his blood that leads to the new covenant, which is a covenant of grace, not not wrath. Yes.
1: Uh, there's also Revelation 14 uh, Revelation 14 19 to 20.
0: Yeah, you want to read some of that for us? Uh,
1: the angels went to the on the earth gathered its grapes and threw them into the great wine of God's wrath. They were traveling the wine press outside the city and blood flowed out of the press rising
0: as high as a house riddle horse's riddle for a distance of one thousand thousand yeah yeah that's heavy stuff right so this imagery is is very significant in the bible um and jesus is saying to james and john guys you you don't you, you don't have the slightest clue what you're asking this burden that i'm going to bear is one that you cannot even comprehend and yet yeah, this is interesting right the baptism that, that Jesus will be baptized with, you know, it's a baptism unto death. And, um, and verse 39, they said to him, we are able. <laughs> now, what's crazy about this is they're not, at least not in their own power and their own strength. But look what Jesus says. The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. Right? Remember back, what is impossible with man is possible with God.
1: It does mean, though, it seems to me that uh, there's a little bit of a switch in, in the nuance of the meaning. While Jesus will, will drink the wrath of God, we no longer have the wrath of God, right? So it must mean that. They are going to be under the wrath of men, and they will also die. But it's not exactly the same cup, is it?
0: Yes, I agree. And, And that careful reading is necessary. And actually, I'm going to say, again, something very similar to this in my sermon today, where you have this imagery from the Old Testament that makes its way into the New Covenant quite often, but with a kind of change, right? So today, I'm going to talk about how we are in exile. Israel was in exile in the Old Testament, but their exile was for disobedience. Right. Our exile in this life is for our obedience because the world hates us. Right. So, Jonas, you're absolutely correct. Um, They will drink, not in exactly the same way, but they will suffer the wrath of man because of their commitment to God. And they will be able to stand under it, not because they are competent in themselves, but because what is impossible with man is possible with God. So that's excellent, man. Thank you. Um, yeah, and and we know at least from church tradition that the both of these uh, disciples were martyred. Um, I don't know their particular stories. Um, all right. So. <clears throat> Verse 20, to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for, it is for those for whom it has been prepared. <clears throat> um, who does sit at Jesus' left hand or right hand? We don't know. Uh, that's not been revealed to us. Um, but we do know from Revelation that actually we... We all, as believers, get a place of prominence that's even greater than that. Right? Should we look at that? I think it's Revelation chapter 3. We'll find it. <clears throat> uh, Revelation chapter 3, verse 21. Jesus says, The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my Father on his throne. So, for those who are faithful and love Jesus and persevere, we don't get a place of prominence to the right or the left. We actually get to be co heirs, we get to be co rulers with Christ in eternity. So these guys, in many ways, although they were ambitious and asking for something great, they actually should have asked for something even greater. Because Christ will grant us greater things. And then, of course, you have the jealousy and the bickering and the infighting. Verse 41, when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. How dare you guys? And Jesus then called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Uh, I don't mean to like get political here, but maybe you are aware of this, that once a year there's this uh, conclave of wealthy, powerful, international leaders, and they gather at this fancy uh, resort town in Switzerland called Davos. It's the World Economic Forum. And these people all fly in on their million dollar jets to get together and talk about how they're smarter and better and wealthier and more powerful than everybody else. And they make these decisions that, through various corporations and political entities, influence how the world works and um, you know I'm sure while they're there they're eating fancier meals than any of us could imagine they're certainly staying in a resort beyond what most of us have the means to stay they got there on private aircrafts and you know the whole thing is just incredibly swanky and if you were to have a private conversation with one of those people I'm sure that they would express to you that they think they're better than you. That's why they get to go to these things and you don't. So Jesus says, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. That's how the kingdom of this world operates. Verse 43, But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first must be a slave of all. So again, if you want to find greatness in the kingdom of God, that greatness is to be found in lowliness. Verse 45, for even the son of man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Philippians 2 already talked about that. But if there was anybody who could show up on the scene and be like, "I am great. Give me honor and praise and glory." It was Jesus, and yet that's not what he did. He came to lay his life down and um, to show us what humility looks like. Anybody have any final thoughts on any of that? Otherwise, we will wrap up, and next time we'll pick up in verse 46. All right, how about I pray for us? God, this kind of humility is not natural for us. Uh, We belong to the race of man that looked at God in the garden and said, We don't want you to be God we want to be greater than you and uh, it was that pride and that arrogance that threw the human heart into rebellion Um, and so Lord forgive us of our pride forgive us of our arrogance and and make us humble we thank you for Jesus who by his humility gave us our salvation and who also by his humility gave us an example to follow And so I pray that we would be people who are lowly, like our Lord and Savior. And we thank you that the promise is that you will store up for us an eternal inheritance in your kingdom to come. And so let us keep our eyes fixed on Christ and on that reward. In his name we pray. Amen.